What a special day in the life of the church. Uh, Pastor Maggie was not kidding. I still have my third grade Bible given to me at Martin UMC uh, in Bedford, Texas. Uh, this was signed by friends of mine in the, in the ministry there. It's even got my handy dandy tabs. Now that's how you knew I was a professional Sunday school attender as a kid. Uh, so I could do the quick find of the tabs. I'm going to use them right now to find our text for us today, which comes from the letter of James, a somewhat controversial letter in the New Testament. I'll say a word about that later today. But here's the, the words that will center us and uh, be sort of our North Star today. James writes this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works, can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I, by my works, will show you my faith. For the word of God in scripture, and for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us, let us say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Yahoo answers. No? Just me? Yahoo Answers, RIP in peace, Yahoo Answers. It is one of the best corners of the internet. Back when the internet was like the wild, wild west, right? When, when you went there because you wanted to see a, a picture of a cute dog or maybe a, a weird YouTube video and, you know, didn't want to undo the fabric of society, right? Back when the internet was fun, yeah? Yahoo Answers uh, was this wonderful forum that Yahoo started where, like, here's the idea, right? You, you have a burning question that you just really need the answer to, and so you decide to turn to random idiots on the internet, right? Like, I wish that I was kidding, but that's literally the whole reason the website works. And, and there are some incredible questions that are asked. Some of my favorites are these. How do I unbake a cake? Or here's one for the third graders. Do vampires poop? It's a good question. Uh, here's another good one. Is there a spell to become a mermaid that actually works? Now, that one has layers to it, right? So first, you got someone who really believes in mermaids. Like, this is a real thing. In fact, their question goes on, goes on to say, like, don't try to convince me mermaids aren't real. But then they've tried spells to make it happen, and they haven't worked this far in their life. Like, there's a, there's a tinge of sadness in this question. Honestly, I, I love Yahoo Answers. My favorite one of all time in all caps. How do I turn off caps lock? Yahoo Answers is good for a laugh. Uh, you rarely find helpful answers at Yahoo Answers. Uh, here's a good pastoral preaching pivot. We have questions in faith too, don't we? Oh, look at the nice transition. Snappy. Pastor Frank is like, okay, good job. I don't think our faith questions, though, are best asked on Yahoo Answers. I mean, maybe they are best asked on Yahoo Answers if it still existed. We could get some really fun ones. But the reality is we are going to amass in the course of our lives tons of questions, right? And some of them are honestly going to be pretty out there. You know, maybe we have questions that sound a little bit like, how do I find a spell that will actually turn me into a mermaid? Um, here at AUMC, we hold questions in high regard. 
It's one of the things that we love to hold. We, we hold questions. We hold holy conversations. We hold each other in our questions and our conversations. We're comfortable in that. And as we continue in this series called Beginnings, Endings, and In-Betweens, we thought it'd be good to take a, a Sunday to talk about the pursuit of what we'd call capital T truth, right? The truth that is true for us as individuals, but then also hopefully in some ways pursuing a more universal truth that can apply more than just to our individual experience. And we would hope that faith would be real enough to speak into that in some way to help guide us in that. But, but, but how? How does faith help us in our pursuit of truth, in that long and winding and meandering path that we take? How can our faith help us in our pursuit of truth? Now, today, what I'm going to talk about is one approach. And I want to say from the get-go, this is not necessarily a one-size-fits-all. You either get on board with what I'm saying or you just get out of this church. It's not one of those kinds of sermons, right? I pray I don't preach too many sermons like that in my tenure here. Um, instead, what I want to offer is a, is a framework that I have found helpful in my life. It's a big reason why I am what we call a Wesleyan, uh, a theological stream of Christianity that comes from John Wesley, who is the, the founder of this Methodist movement. And there is a Wesleyan approach, a uniquely Wesleyan approach to trying to find capital T truth in our faith. I have found it helpful. I know countless millions of people throughout the earth have found it helpful. I pray maybe it's helpful for you. And what I'm going to share today is something we call the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Now that sounds really bookish, but essentially what it is is, is this four-part framework and structure of pursuing faith and truth in our lives. How do we answer? How do we not even answer, but just hold and work through those really big questions of faith in our life? So the first part of the quadrilateral that um, is primary to us is, is Scripture. Maybe you've heard people say, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, right? That's one way to go about looking at Scripture. That, that would not be a Wesleyan uh, perspective. I want to take a, a moment here to explain um, a Wesleyan way of holding Scripture. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on this subject. In fact, I have. Um, but, but here's the Cliff Notes edition, if you will. Can we hold on, uh, hold, hold on tight as we work through this? Scripture is primary, right? It's, it's where we start. Wesley was committed to the, 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 these holy texts, these 66 books, um, being our primary source of, of understanding who God is and how God loves us. But it's really important to note that it is not the only Thing that we have. It is not our only tool. It is not the only place that God reveals God's self in our lives. As Christians, we believe that inside these holy words are, are many things and many truths and a whole lot of other stuff too. Um, and it's a great place to start, but it's not the only way we can understand who God is in our lives. A couple things to know that's really important as Wesleyans. Maybe this is your first time in a Methodist church. We believe that the Bible is inspired uh, by God which means that we believe that God was a part of that conversation of creating the words found in these pages. But we don't believe, and this is really important, we do not believe that this text is inerrant nor infallible. Those are two fancy words that basically mean we don't believe that, these, that this book or these books, really it's a library I'm holding, we don't believe that these books are perfect in the form in which we hold them, right? Whether that's because the original author put too much of themselves in the story and, and, and not enough God. Maybe it's because through the millennia of editing, you know, uh, we've played the telephone game with some of these books. And maybe what started out has turned out to be something very different. But we are careful to say that this is not a perfect text. Right? It, is, um, it is primary. It is helpful. It is inspired. But it is not a perfect text. And that's important because... If we believe that it is totally without error, that can lead us to some really weird end runs. I'll say a word about that in a second. 
Pastor Adam Hamilton, he's a, he's a Methodist pastor, uh, prominent author and speaker. He pastors the largest Methodist church in the, in the country in, in Kansas City called Church of the Resurrection. And he wrote a book that I find very helpful called Making Sense of the Bible. If you're someone who is wanting to make sense of the Bible, that's a great place to start. And he talks about how scripture can be broken down essentially into three buckets when it comes to our pursuit of truth. Now go with me. I know buckets is not the most uh, beautiful language to use, but that's the way that he describes it. He says the first bucket is scriptures that express God's heart and character and timeless will for human beings, right? Th think about like, like Micah, right? What have I required of you, O human, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? Right now, if you want a clear picture as to the heart of who God is, that timeless will, you know, Mike is a great, a great verse to look at. And it's not just about the individual verses, but those through lines from the first verse of generous, gen Genesis to the last amen in Revelation. What are those through lines that we can get a clear picture of who God is and how God loves us and what God's will is for our lives? The second bucket, Adam says, is the scriptures that expressed God's will, perhaps in a particular time, but are no longer binding for us today. Uh, think about Paul's words to the church in Corinth, and when he tells the women there that they should not speak up in church. Now, you talk about a verse that has done a lot of damage in a lot of time, right? And as the, the spouse of a clergywoman myself, like I have strong feelings about Paul's words to the church in Corinth. Whether or not that was applicable for them at the, in those days, uh, he and I are definitely going to need to have a pub theology talk when, uh, when, when we meet one day. Um, that would be a, a, an instance of a scripture that perhaps was applicable for a certain context in a certain place in a certain time, but is no longer binding for us today. Because again, the larger thread, the larger through line says that God's spirit works through all people, men, women, non-binary, white, black, gay, straight, trans, you name it. God's spirit works through all people. That's the overriding view of scripture. And then there's the third bucket of scripture, scriptures that never fully express the heart of God, God's character, or God's will, right? Think about those scriptures that perhaps you've greatly struggled with because it sounds like God is a violent, vindictive jerk. Whenever you're reading the Bible and it says to, and it says in the in the pages God said blank or God did blank especially when God says or God does something that you think this does not align with the through line of who I understand God to be as I look from verse 1 to the last amen what we need to consider is that perhaps the author was placing some things in God's hands that did not belong there Maybe the author is placing words in God's mouth that did not belong there because, again, it's inspired, but it is imperfect. And I say that as someone who deeply loves these books. I've devoted my life to them. It's not a statement of disrespect. It's a statement of acknowledging the way that it's intended to work. Okay, I could talk about the Bible for an hour, so I'm going to keep moving. Are you all holding on tight? I had my coffee this morning. Can you tell? Folks online, go get a second cup. You're going to need it. The last thing I'll say about scripture is this, not all scripture is created equal, right? We talk about those three buckets, right? As I'm reading scripture and I read about Jesus's words about loving my neighbor and loving my God and making my life about putting my faith into action, those are going to weigh a lot more to me than the scriptures about not mixing different fibers in my clothing, right? Not all scripture is created equal, and that's okay. It is okay to say um, when someone tries to cherry pick one or two or three or literally seven verses saying this is why we should not include certain people in the life of the church. It's okay to say, great, but here's an entire book that tells you wrong. 
right? It's okay to say that through the first verse and last amen, there is a, there is a God who desires a boundless, boundary-free church, right? It's okay to say that. Because not every scripture is created equal. We have to do the hard work of finding those through lines. So three things to know about scripture as, as those who would seek to process it in the Wesleyan way. Scripture is a conversation, not a dictation. It's a conversation between God and the author and also a conversation between us and the living text. Scripture is primary, not secondary. We cannot sit in a room by ourselves with this book and hope to get a full picture of who God is. It doesn't work like that. That's not the reason that we have this library in our hands. Scripture is a conversation, not a dictation. Scripture is primary, not solitary. Lastly, Scripture is authoritative, not authoritarian. There are different types of authorities in this world. I don't believe that God seeks to be a totalitarianistic dictator. Otherwise, why in the world do we have all this free will that's messing so much stuff up? If God wanted us to be robots and just do whatever programmatic inputs God put in, then I think that's how we would operate. But I don't know about you. Is that the way that you work or the world works around you? No. I don't believe that's how this text is meant to work either. It's meant to be authoritative. It's, helped to, it's meant to guide and direct our lives and our actions, but it's not authoritarian. It's not that whenever the Bible says jump, we say how high. We're allowed to ask questions. We're allowed to push back. We're allowed to say, wait, does that line up with the through line? Let's keep moving. All right, caffeine's working. Number two, the second part of the quadrilateral. First is scripture, scripture's primary. The second way that we uh, pursue the questions of life and faith as Wesleyans is with tradition. Now, tradition's a big word that can mean a lot of things. I'll do my best to, to explain what, what, how I understand tradition in a Wesleyan understanding. It's the, it's the notion that everything that came before is valuable, right? Whether or not it's what we are supposed to continue to do today, it is valuable. It informs not just where we've been, it can also tell us where we are and perhaps even where we're meant to be. Tradition is something that ought to be respected in the life of the church because there have been thousands upon thousands of years of ancient wisdom that is gifted to us, not just through scripture, but also through creeds and also through holy conversations, also through the mystics and the mothers and fathers of the church, right? If we just say, oh, they, they, they didn't get it. We get it today, though. We are so much smarter than those idiots, right? That is a very proud place to be in the worst sense of the word, Right? Part of what it means to hold tradition valuable is to humble thyself enough to say that maybe somebody has done some good work in this area. Maybe I ought to hear what they have to say before I begin to think that I'm going to bring all the answers today with myself. Now, Jesus respected tradition as much or more than anybody. He, in fact, in many ways was trying to return the church that he loved, this, this traditional, this Jewish tradition movement that he loved back to its original ancient intents. You know, he inherited some modern day traditions in his day that did not line up with what he understood to be the heart and will of God. Think about that, that moment when he enters into the temple and is flipping tables, right? Now you might say, now that's someone who doesn't respect tradition. <laughs> Jesus doesn't respect tradition. Jesus loves tradition. He hates the way that tradition has, has been twisted into something it was meant to be. So he's willing to challenge and confront those traditions that were actually very harmful and helpful to the people and unhelpful to the people in his day. And so as we as Christians, as Wesleyans, uh, it, for those of us who subscribe to the stream of theology, uh, 
as we begin to wrestle with our faith and its questions, we should hold tradition with respect, but we should also confront and challenge tradition. Of course we should, because Jesus did. And any tradition, hear me, church, we're going to step on a toe or two, including my own, any tradition that cannot be challenged is simply nostalgia. What do I mean by that? Here's a weird example. The best movie ever made is Cool Runnings. It's the be- that is the pinnacle of cinematic achievement is Cool Runnings. I have seen that movie so many times I could quote every last line of, of it to you. I named my first car as a teenager Talula, and if you know, you know. Cool Runnings is the best movie of all time. You will never convince me otherwise, not because objectively it is the best movie of all time. In fact, if you were to remake Cool there are probably several things that could be improved. It is not a perfect movie, but I will never be convinced otherwise. Why? Because I saw it for the first time with my cousin when I was five years old, and that was our favorite movie to watch together over and over and over and over again. I don't love it because it's actually a perfect movie. I think it's the best movie ever because that's my nostalgia talking, right? Sometimes these traditions that we hold to, whether they are traditional beliefs, traditional practices, traditional whatever, we're holding them not really respecting tradition, but more worshiping nostalgia. Oof. Wishing we could get back to the good old days. Of course, the problem with the good old days is they are not always good for everyone. And so before we cling too tightly to, to, to tradition and seek to be its protectors and defenders against any and all onslaught, let us remember the way of Jesus and the way that he challenged the traditions in his day. And let us be careful not to allow our traditions to simply become nostalgia. Let's respect and revere tradition, to treat it with respect, to treat it with the care and attention that it deserves. But let's lighten our grip just enough so that we don't accidentally slip into the worship of nostalgia. The third aspect of the Wesleyan quadrilateral is reason, scripture, tradition, and reason. This was not something that Wesley invented as a way of pursuing faith. In fact, none of these, all three of these were the, the, the ways of, of pursuing, you know, capital T truth that Wesley kind of inherited from his Anglican tradition. Um, Wesley was alive during the Enlightenment age. So reason was a really popular sort of new way of understanding faith, that that God was logical, God was reasonable. The the way that God's love worked could be reason, that we could know God in that way. Now here's the, the only pitfall we can run into with reason is that sometimes we tend to think that our own perspective is quite reasonable and that others are biased or crazy, right? Isn't it funny how that works? Does anybody in here claim to be a completely unreasonable and illogical person? No, but if I were to say, do you know anybody who's completely unreasonable and illogical, how many hands would go up, right? If you're online, if you know somebody, say, yeah, they're sitting right next to me right now. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Don't start a fight. Um, It's it's Sunday morning. You need another cup of coffee if you're going to do that. Um, I believe that we ought to love God with our minds. I love loving God with my mind. The intellectual pursuit of the Christian faith is one of the things that keeps me coming back for more and for more. I know that's something that we celebrate here at AUMC through our classes, through our Bible studies, through our small groups. The the value of learning is such a high value here, and I love that. And at the same time, with all the love I have in my heart for a church and tradition that says, don't shut your brain off at the door, 
We also have to be careful at times that especially in Western, I'll say Western white Anglo Christianity, that we don't turn Christianity into a exercise or into a scholastic endeavor that ought to be studied further. And that's how we get to the heart of God through just knowing, learning more about God. Yes, we should know and learn more about God. Yes, we are told to love God with our minds, but we cannot expect our minds to do all of the work. There is a reason that Deuteronomy and Jesus through line, right? Through line. There is a reason that we are told to love God and love each other with our minds and also our heart and our soul and our strength. The mind is just one part of the puzzle. So lastly, we come to the really the uniqueness of Wesleyan pursuit of truth. This is, the, this is the part of the quadrilateral that Wesley kind of uh, initiated, invited into uh, the Christian tradition as a whole. And that was this concept of experience, being a way that we could understand who God is, where we could find the answers, the capital T truths in our lives and in the world that our experience matters. Now, when we say experience, we really mean two things. First, we mean that, that personal lot level of experience, right? It's that healing message that says your understanding, your experience, your lived experience of who God is and how God's love works in the world, that is valid. And it is not just valid, it is needed by the larger body of Christ. We are better because of your personal experiential lived experience understanding of who God is and how God's love works in the world. That can be a healing message to people who have been told over and over again, you don't matter. Your understanding of God doesn't matter. Just be quiet and listen. Let me tell you who God is, right? That's a healing message. But it's more than just us as individuals. Experience also means that communal aspect of experience, the ways that peoples understand who God is and how God's love works in the world. A great example of this could be during the 21st century, um, uh, or yeah, it's the, wait, the 20th century. I always mix those up, uh, how the numbers work. It's weird. I'm tired. Uh, the 20th century, um, when you have this, this suddenly, this field of flowers blooming in Christian theology and voices like James Cone come up. And James Cone, if you don't know, wrote the book called A Theology of Black Liberation. And the point he tried to make in that book very successfully that it influenced an entire generation and more of theologians was that it is hard to fully understand who God is until you understand the lived black American experience. To know what it means to be marginalized and oppressed in that kind of a way, that will show you what it means when Christ says, I have come to set the captive free. Right? You can't really know what that means until you see it through the eyes of someone like James Cone. And so it's this idea that I don't just need my own experience, but I need everyone's experiences. The more I listen, the more that I learn, the more rich and the more deep and the more full the image of God appears before me. I think this is a gift for 21st century people. I think we're a people who are naturally drawn to want to, to know that our own experiences matter and to also listen and learn to the experience of others. And I think we want to bring that into the church and into the life of faith. If that's true, say amen. I hope I'm not making an assumption there. I, I, I hear this in the conversations that I have with folks who are, um, have, have found themselves pushed out of other churches before because this stuff just is not entertained. But here's what I believe is the most important part, and I promise I'm landing the plane. The most important wrinkle in the Wesleyan understanding of experience is this. It integrates into each of those other three ways of understanding God. Experience isn't 
island, but it integrates into each of the other three understandings of God. So in terms of Scripture, our experience can inform those sort of second and third level questions like this. How do I experience God within this text? Or how, how do others maybe experience God within this text? How do, who do I identify with or who do I not identify with? How have I seen this Scripture evidenced in my own life or in the lives of others? On the subject of tradition, it might cause us to ask questions. Whose tradition are we holding as valuable? What about the traditions that have been silenced because they were marginalized in history? What traditions proved formative and, and which ones have proven harmful or unhelpful? Which of those traditions have become nostalgia? Right? On the subject of reason, our experience and others' experiences can lead us to ask questions like, can someone else's understanding help inform my own? Or here's the one that I have to ask myself a lot. Is something I find unreasonable, in fact, simply unfamiliar? Do you see how experience integrates into the full life of the way that we pursue capital T truth in our lives? And that brings us finally back to James. I told you we'd get back to him when we started. The reason why James is such a controversial letter in the Bible is because some people feared that it would lead us to a place of works righteousness. In fact, Martin Luther, remember the guy that nailed all the problems on the Wittenberg door? He was the one that you know, started this whole Protestantism thing. He hated this letter. He hated it. He, he called it the straw letter, the straw epistle, something like that. He just thought it was incredibly weak because he was worried it would lead people to, to believe in works righteousness, this idea that you can work yourself into heaven or into eternal life. But see, I, I respectfully believe that Martin Luther woefully misread this letter because what I hear James saying is that I think is truer now than perhaps it ever has been, that we need a faith that is real. And if faith is just something we talk about, or something we learn about, or something we, we tell people about, if faith is just those warm words of kindness of, I know you're hungry and I will pray for you, if faith is nothing more than a warm and fuzzy feeling or interesting idea, then James says, just throw it away. It's useless. Do something else with your life. But if it can be real, if it becomes bread in the belly of the hungry, if it becomes good news, just not to your ears, but to your soul, if it becomes tactile and tangible the way that God became real in the person of Jesus, if that's what faith is, then it is irreplaceable. It's everything. Our experiences are what allow everything else, Scripture, the tradition, the reason. It's what brings all of those things to life. It's what makes them real in our life. It's what propels us into what we call an incarnational faith, that faith that becomes flesh, just like Christ. Lived experiences, lived experience is the source of truth that takes our holy texts and traditions and thoughts and makes them real. So yes, let us love God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and our strength. But for the love of God, quite literally, for the love of God, let our faith not simply live up here or in here or even in just my hands, but let it live, let it live in the world around us. Amen.